Good morning. Welcome to the online teaching ministry of New Hope Presbyterian Church. My name is Tommy Allen. I am the lead pastor. And this morning we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 6. Before we do that, there are a couple announcements I wanted to give. The first is just this, that if you are able and you feel comfortable, we are meeting in person for worship every Sunday at 10 a.m. now at our campus in uh, Kent, Washington, New Hope Presbyterian Church. We would love for you to come. Of course, we're following all the rules, the social distancing, the masks, the sneeze guards, all of that kind of thing. So come, please. And if you can't come, or if you do come, um, I also want to remind you that today, afternoon, this afternoon at 3 p.m. via Zoom, is our budget informational meeting to prepare us for the congregational meeting next week. And so if you're interested in that, you can get the information from Samuel Weems. You can uh, email him. You can probably make a comment even here at, and ask him for the info or ask him to message you. So with all of that said, I thought I would begin this morning with a confession of sin. So let us confess. Gracious Father, with heartfelt sorrow, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. Grant us grace to walk in your commands and guard us from the work of the evil one. When we are tempted to pride, show us your humility. When we are tempted to self-righteousness, show us your true righteousness. When we are tempted to anger, show us your kindness. When we are tempted to believe Satan's lies, show us your truth. When we are overwhelmed with brokenness, show us your shalom. Amen and amen. Well, at this point of the service, in the live services, I would ask you to take a moment to confess your sins silently, and then I would give an assurance of pardon, which I'll do right now. If you have trusted Jesus, if you have confessed your sins unto Him, He is faithful and just to forgive you. And so I say to you, know that your sins are forgiven, and be at peace. Amen and amen. Now, to jump into our text, we're looking this morning at Matthew chapter 6. We're, we're We've looked at the whole Bible up to this point. Now we're in the life of Jesus. And today's text is one of the most famous in the whole Bible, right? It's the Lord's Prayer. Um, I thought I would ask you, though, a question to sort of uh, grease the skids to get us ready for the context of the Lord's Prayer. And the question is this. What do the following individuals have in common? Now, if you watched my update a few days ago, you'd know the answer to this question. So the following individuals, um, the governor of California the governor of New York, the governor of Michigan, uh, the governor of New Mexico, the governor of West Virginia, the mayor of Washington, D.C., the mayor of Chicago, the mayor of New York, and there are many more. And what do they have in common besides being politicians? And the answer is this. Every one of them imposed strict lockdown orders on their constituents, whether it was in New York or whether it was in Chicago or whether it was San Francisco. And every one of those politicians was caught on film, flagrantly violating the restrictions that they had imposed on everyone else. That by definition is what? What does that make them? They, what they have in common? They are all hypocrites. That's, that's like the definition of hypocrisy, is it not? At least in our minds, that's the definition of hypocrisy. And I know some of you are thinking, well, you know, the church is full of hypocrites too. And the fact is that is just false. The church is not full of hypocrites because there are always room for more. That's why we have the Sermon on the Mount, to deal with hypocrisy in the church. You see, the context of the Sermon on the Mount, the context of this section on prayer is hypocrisy. 
You see, we tend to look at hypocrisy um, externally, right? We look at the governor of California and we say he imposed these lockdowns and now he is breaking them. It's on film and he is a hypocrite, which that, that's true. Um, what Jesus does, though, is Jesus tends to think of hypocrisy internally. In other words, rather than just only what your actions are, what were your motivations? What motivated you to be a hypocrite? You see, unless you, you understand your motivation, you can't fix it, right? So the question is this, is sort of uh, using prayer. He's going to basically say, what is our hypocrisy real about our hearts and what we believe or what we don't believe? And so today's text, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at basically... Um, God's approval, we're going to look at God's attention, and God's promises. And, and it, in other words, the hypocrite either doesn't know or believe or has forgotten what a child does know, does believe, and remembers. And those three things are God's approval, God's attention, and God's promises. So let me pray for us. Father, I pray that even now as we dive into this text that you would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that you'd be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen and amen. So let's consider first God's approval. Notice verse 5 and 6. Jesus says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Okay? So Jesus is talking, he's addressing issues of hypocrisy in Jewish religious life. He's going to address hypocrisy in giving, he's going to address hypocrisy with regard to fasting. But today, Prayer is what we're talking about. And to just give you some context, in Jewish daily life, there were about 18 different prayers, daily prayers, that were supposed to be given at different times of the day. Now, if you wanted to do those in secret, you would arrange your day so that you weren't in public when the time came to pray. Let's say it was 9, noon, and 3 p.m. And what Jesus is saying is the, the hypocrite basically made sure that they were in public at 9, 12, and 3, so that other people could hear them doing their prayers and doing them very loudly. Or they were the ones who stood up in synagogue and someone would say, could someone pray for, for Betty's gallbladder? They were the ones who stood up and they would pray and pray and pray and pray and their language would sound flowery and they wanted people to see them praying. And so that's who they were. They were basically using prayer to get attention and what they what we don't what they didn't understand is, is well notice what why they did it. it Jesus says they do it that they may be seen by others in other words they're look they're doing this in order to get the approval of other people to get the, the sort of pats on the back to get the admiration of other people and what they don't get I mean all of us have this this desire to be approved of all of us have the desire to be accepted and all of us, you know, Herman Melville said in Moby Dick, all of us Presbyterians and pagans are like are cracked about the head and desperately in need of mending. All of us, however, fail 
to believe, we fail to understand, we fail to remember the approval that's available to us in the gospel. In other words, these religious people are, are making these religious shows in order to get the approval of people, and what they don't get is that they already could have the approval of God, that they already could have the only approval that doesn't matter. You see, to the extent to which we understand we have the approval of God is the extent to which we will or will not uh, seek the approval from other people. In other words, if I know for sure that God loves me and approves of me, then I should, in theory, not give a whit of care about what you care, think about me, or what you say about me, because God, my Father, loves me and cares for me and approves of me. Let me show you how that works. Remember, we looked at Luke chapter 4 a couple weeks ago, and in Luke 4, we found that Jesus came as our representative. He was our, the second Adam, right? He came onto the scene. He was baptized. And at his baptism, God made this pronouncement. He said, this is my beloved son in whom I have, am well pleased. Now, he identified with his people. And the principle we can glean from the gospel is this, is whatever God thinks of Jesus, he thinks of you. Okay, it's like then Jesus went to the wilderness and he he battled temptation and faced off with Satan and he was successful. And God looks at him and approves of that success. Whatever he thinks of Jesus, he thinks of you. You know, there's a movie that came out either in the late 80s or 90s. I forget. um, Called When a Man Loves a Woman. It starred Meg Ryan and Andy Garcia. And she was basically there was this upscale, very wealthy couple. And she was an alcoholic. And it really wreaked havoc on their lives and on their marriage. And at some point she checks herself into a rehab. And in rehab, there are most people, in fact, all the people are lower class than her, if you will. In other words, if she's really super wealthy, they are sort of maybe blue collar. They're just not like her. And her husband finds out he's there and Andy Garcia goes storming in and he says, you come with me right now. You need to get away from these people. And she stands up And she says, whatever you think of these people, these addicts, these alcoholics, you think of me. And that's just a super powerful moment because what Jesus does at the cross is the exact same thing, right? Here's Jesus, God's beloved son, his only begotten son, the son who never sinned. And imagine God coming to smite people and Jesus standing in front and saying, whatever you think of these people, you think of me. That's what the cross is all about. God thinking of Jesus, what he thinks of us. And because of that, Jesus takes our justice. Now, the good news is this, is Jesus doesn't just say, whatever you think of these people, think of me. The flip side of that is, whatever you think of me, think of these people. And God is completely pleased with Jesus. And if he is completely pleased with Jesus, completely approves of Jesus, then whoever is in Christ, whoever has trusted Jesus, also has the complete and utter approval of God. You see, what this means um, is if the gospel is true, you don't need the approval of people because you have the, the approval of God. It means instead of praying or doing anything to gain God's approval, you can pray or be religious because you have God's approval. You see, the, the hypocrite doesn't necessarily, if the hypocrite doesn't believe that they have God's approval, um, they sure don't believe they have God's attention either, right? So the first motivation for, for hypocrisy, Jesus would say, especially with regard to prayer, is 
the, the hypocrite doesn't believe he has God's attention. And so he's got to get other people's attention. Someone validate the fact that I'm doing the right thing here. Uh, someone approve of me. And then the next thing, the hypocrite tries to get God's attention because he doesn't know that he has it. And that's where Jesus goes next. So be, he begins with this issue of approval. They do this in order to be seen. But notice what happens next in verses 7 and 8. He says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So this is one of those texts that is misread all the time, and it's misused all the time. So it says, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. I have literally heard people from a more sort of charismatic, non-denominational bent complain about liturgical worship, or let's, let's say, put it at the other end, Episcopal worship or Anglican worship that is very highly liturgical, and you're reading everything, and you're repeating all these phrases, and they would say, oh, that worship is just horrible because it's just repeating empty phrases. And I've heard high liturgical folks complain about non-denominational people saying um, all they do is they sing one song for 30 minutes and they just sing the same chorus over and over. They're just repeating empty phrases. And Jesus says, don't do that. Well, you know, of course, we're Presbyterian, so we're right in the middle and we do things decently in order and correctly. But that's not what this verse is about. That's the verse isn't about how you worship and whether you should uh, be sort of uh, avant-garde or whether you should be like old school. What it is about is this. Um, the issue is that they are doing all these things in order to be heard, right? The first thing, the, the, the first part, they're, they're praying in order to be seen. And in this batch of verses, they're praying in order to be heard. He says, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. What does he mean by that? Well, I think one of the classic examples of that, that as it plays out in the, the Bible, is in the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. It's in uh, 1 Kings chapter 18. And if you remember that story, that Elijah basically has got him frustrated with Israel because they, they're sort of vacillating between following Yahweh and following Baal. And so he calls everyone together and he calls 450 of the prophets of Baal together. And he basically says this. It says, so Ahab sent the people of Israel and gathered all the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only have left a prophet of the Lord for Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on wood and put fire to it and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire. He is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Okay, so you get the, the scenario here is both the prophets of Baal, 450 of them, versus Elijah. Each of them will get a bull. Each of them will call out to their God. And the one who calls out to their God, whoever is God in reality, will burn up the sacrifice by fire. Okay, so verse 26 says this. 
And they, that's the prophets of Baal, took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from the morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself or he's on a journey or perhaps he is asleep and he must be wakened. And they cried out loud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. So not only do you have one prophet prattling on all day long, not only do you have one prophet prattling on and cutting himself and dancing and making all this hubbub, you had 450 prophets doing this. So if it was about getting God's attention or a God's attention, that should have done it. And yet no one paid attention. Notice how it works for Elijah. Elijah ups the ante. He basically tells people to take four jars of water and pour them on my sacrifice. And he said, do it three times. And they, there was so much water on this that there was a trench around this, the altar that was filled with water. And here's all Elijah says. Elijah the prophet came near and said, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are a God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I've done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed and burnt the offerings and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord is he is God. So Elijah, what does he do? He simply calls out to God. He says, God, you know, I'm, the one, I'm here just like you called me to be here. And I pray that you would just answer me now. And fire comes down from heaven and just destroys the altar. It licks up the water. It does everything. Almost as if God were waiting to be asked, almost as if he was just on the edge of his seat, paying attention to everything. No, remember, it said about the prophets of Baal, it says, nobody paid attention. And Elijah, as soon as he opened his mouth, almost, God was there. He answered. And the point is, we don't need to work or jump through hoops to gain God's attention. Because of his promises, we already have it. Elijah already have it. Notice what Jesus says in verse 8. He says, do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. So there's two things there. One, he says, not only does your father know what you want, your father knows what you need. Sometimes we pray for things we want and they're not good for us until God doesn't give them to us. But our father knows what we need before we even ask. Now, the only way that God could know what we need before we ask is if he had been paying attention to us prior even to us praying. In other words, God knows what we need before we ask is because He is constantly attentive to us. He is constantly active in our life. We tend to think God is only active in miracles, right? It's like, woo, stimulus check came. It's a miracle. God is just as active in providence, the day-to-day -day working of what's going on in our life as He is in miracle. And He is just as attentive in all of these things. And what prayer is, is our chance to pay attention to him. 
he says that, remember Jesus says, your father who go, go to your father who's in secret, shut the door when you pray. He says that your father knows what you need before you ask. In other words, prayer is, is our chance to bask in the fact that God pays attention to us, that he approves of us, that he pays attention to us, and now we get to go back to him and approve of him and pay attention to him. And when we start paying attention to God, we realize that most prayer is really just reminding God of what he has already promised to us, right? For the sake of time, I'm not going to go through the whole Lord's Prayer, not in detail. We've done that before. I preached it probably six months ago, if you want to go back and listen to those sermons. But here, let me just show you how what God is telling us to pray for, that which we pray for, are things that he has already promised. In other words, Jesus doesn't say, when you pray, pray like this. This thing that may or may not ever happen or this thing that God may or may not have promised, ask him. Who knows? Everything that Jesus tells us to pray for in the Lord's Prayer is something that God has already promised us. And so by praying the thing, really, we are just reminding God of something he has already said to us. So, for example, what has God promised? Notice in the Lord's Prayer, verse 9 says, pray like this then. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So the first thing God has promised is shalom, right? In the Bible, what shalom means is not just peace, but it means the way things are supposed to be. So when Adam and Eve were placed in the garden, after six days of creation, the last, the, the culmination of creation was humanity. And God, functionally speaking, practically speaking, um, put his feet up on the couch and said, you know, it is good. This is the way things are supposed to be. And what happened in the garden when Adam and Eve uh, sinned, they violated shalom and everything, all dominoes toppled after that. And so what God did immediately was come in, Genesis 3.15, and promise that he would fix the problem. That there was, there was creation, there was fall, but then there would be redemption and restoration. That God would fix what Adam had broken. And when Jesus comes, he's called the second Adam or the last Adam because what Adam destroyed, Jesus will restore. And so what is... The, God promising, what is God promised? He's promised the restoration of all things. He's promised that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. He's promised that ultimately we'll have perfect government on the shoulders of this one Jesus. And he says, so pray like this, that our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Remember the whole, all the prophets, read Isaiah, talks about how God is going to make a name for himself among the nations. That's all that means. Hallowed be your name. May your name be holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, the presumption is that things in heaven are the way they are supposed to be. Make them how they are here. Make them here how they are there. And God has promised that. He has promised that from Genesis 3.15 throughout the whole Bible. He says, now pray for that. Right? God approves of us. He is attentive, waiting for these prayers. And so now the next thing you see is that he has promised to provide for us. He says the next part of the prayer is give us this day our daily bread. And this is no doubt an allusion to manna and the, uh, given to Israel in the desert where each day they were supposed to go out and get only enough. And God promised that he would provide for that. And he did for 40 years. And so 
God has promised to give us our daily bread. He doesn't promise that we'll have more than we need. He doesn't promise that, that we would have a great abundance of physical things, but He did promise to give us our daily bread. So most of us, if you live in the United States and are listening to this, we have much more than our daily bread. But Jesus says we ought to be praying as if we relied on God for everything. The next thing we see is that He says, to pray for, he says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Well, that language of debt is what how Jewish people would have talked about sins. Like we have this debt of sins. And Jesus says, party, the way you should be praying is to say, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Now, part of that is that God has promised to forgive our sins. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. Whoever uh, professes his name will have your sins forgiven. You'll have the perfect righteousness of Christ imputed to you. But also the assumption here is that is going to affect your life in such a way that you will become a person who can forgive others, that you will become more and more like Jesus. But also we were promised that we would become more and more like Jesus. That's the whole doctrine of sanctification. The last promise that we remind ourselves of in prayer here is the promise that God is going to finish the job. Notice it says, verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now that's a dicey phrase to, to translate and people say God doesn't tempt anybody. James says God doesn't tempt anybody. Um, a better translation, or at least a better explanation of the translation, would mean something like, um, let us not fail to persevere. In, in other words, help us to, to persevere. The, like, the, let not temptation come to us or trials come to us in such a way that, that it will knock us off the path permanently. And he says, and deliver us from evil. Well, when you pray for that, it's not as if it's not going to happen. You're just reminding God of what He has already promised. Right? Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you, what? Will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And when we pray, the, the last part of the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into to temptation, but deliver us from evil. We are simply reminding God that you promised that you began a good work in me and that you would not fail to complete it. And that nothing, at the end of the day, nothing can snatch us out of his hand. And so at the end of the day, we aren't um, attention-starved orphans who are sort of desperately longing for approval when we go to prayer. Instead, in prayer, we're completely approved children who are basking in the attention of a loving Father. That changes things, right? At least for me, because most of the way we approach prayer is we feel guilty because we didn't either know how to pray, we didn't know what to pray, we don't know if we prayed enough. And I think what we learned from the Lord's Prayer and the part that just preceded it is if you have the approval of God and if you have the, the attention of God and if you have the promises of God, you have everything you need, just go there. Now, many of you know, I've said over and over again, one of my favorite ways to pray for the past several years has been an app called Prayer Mate. No, we're not a sponsor on this show, but you ought to consider it. I not only download it, but there, I think there's $10 feed to sort of open it up to, to make it even more functional. And that has genuinely changed my prayer life. Maybe Samuel could put a link to it as well. So if you're looking... Uh, for some way to keep your prayers and some way to keep your prayers organized, that's a very practical way. So with all of that said, let me com uh, 
come to the end of this by reading to you what the Jesus Storybook Bible says about this passage. So how the Jesus Storybook Bible lays it out is this. It says, well, first of all, the way they say the Lord's Prayer. Hello, Daddy. <laughs> we want you to know and be close to you. Please show us how. Make everything in the world right again and in our hearts, too. Do what is best, just like you do in heaven. And please do it down here, too. Please give us everything we need today. Forgive us for doing wrong, for hurting you. Forgive us just as we forgive other people when they hurt us. Rescue us. We need you. We don't want to keep running away and hiding from you. Keep us safe from our enemies. You're strong, God. You can do whatever you want. You are in charge, now and forever and for always. We think you're great. Amen. Yes, we do. You see, Jesus was showing people that God would, never, that God would always love them with a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always and forever love. So they didn't need to hide anymore or be afraid or be ashamed. They could stop running away from God and they could run to Him instead as a little child runs into her daddy's arms. Let's pray. Father, I do pray um, that you would um, make us better prayers because you make us better understanders of the gospel, that we would understand our approval, we would understand your attention and your promises. And all these things brought together would enable us to bask in your love. Christ's name we pray these things, amen and amen. So I thought I would bring us to a close today um, with a profession of faith from the Westminster Larger Catechism. Typically at this point in the service, maybe even now as you're watching this, um, we would have an offertory. We're not doing that during live worship right now. We're doing a time of meditation um, and the offering is given sort of in the back. And then we would have a profession of faith and then the Lord's Supper. So the profession of faith that we're using in live worship this weekend is the one I use right now. And it's from the Westminster Larger, Larger Catechism, question 180. And it is this question. What is the significance of praying in Christ's name? Answer. When we pray in Christ's name, we obey his command and confidently rely on his promises as a basis for requesting mercy for his sake. This involves not just mentioning his name, but drawing our encouragement to pray and our boldness, strength, and hope that our prayers will be answered from Christ himself and his mediation. Amen. So let me send you from this virtual place uh, with God's blessing, reminding you that the Lord your God is with you. The Lord your God is a mighty and victorious warrior, and the Lord your God shouts over you with great shouts of joy. Leave this virtual place in that peace and in that knowledge. Amen and amen. Have a great week.